of Sean and Ed's do baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. We're bringing you some baseball along with some jet planes <laughs> flying overhead. Jet plane action going on. It's the Top Gun edition <laughs> of Sean and Ed's do baseball. Here we go. Maverick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maverick. Maverick and Goose do baseball. Here we go. Yeah, okay. So yeah, there's the CNE uh, Toronto uh, exhibition air Canadian show going on. Yeah, exhibition. Yeah. In Nash, Toronto. Yeah, yes. in Toronto. So we're recording uh, during the Labor Day weekend. Happy Labor Day, even though you're listening to this a week or later. Yeah. Um, but at the same point... Welcome uh, to our bi-weekly baseball history podcast, where yeah. the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be throwing them. And we're talking about a catcher today. Are we? Making nice. a, an impossible attempt. <laughs> at? At a catch. Oh, okay. So... I feel like we've had a story like that before. Oh, we have. This one And is... it also involved planes. Yes. Everything's coming full circle. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A hundred percent. So before I tell you this wonderful tale, and by the way, I'm going back to back. We haven't had a back to back for a while. Yeah. Uh, life is busy. I can't wait for the non-baseball season when we get to uh, sit down and, and really uh, get some guests on here and, and, and have a good time and... It's going to be great. Yeah, for sure. Things are winding down. It's the middle of September right now. Yeah. Uh, the Blue Jays are holding on to a, a playoff position for dear life right now. We hope. We hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We said this last year around this time. We were saying that the Jays were surging. This, That's right. You know, uh, anyways, we digress. Before yeah, we yes. get into this story, uh, follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball. Uh, my personal one is Sean Do Baseball. And I'm at Ed's Do Baseball. That's right. Uh, if you're listening, whatever platform you're listening to, if you're listening, uh, of course you are. So give us a review, give us a rating, anything. As I say we're all ears for story ideas as well. And this idea actually somewhat didn't come from The Simpsons, but... Okay. It, I like it already. Exactly. But of course, thanks for listening. I just want to throw that in there yeah. too. So am I ready? We're going to go? I'm ready if you are. All right. You ready? Yeah. All right. Play ball. Um, So, Eds, have you ever looked up all nine members of Mr. Burns' original choices for his ringer softball team? Uh, I feel like I might have at some point. Okay. Okay. So do you remember the catcher of that team? (laughs) I say yes, and I immediately say no. I can't remember who the catcher is. Steve Sachs? Was he a catcher? He yeah, wasn't a catcher. Well, that's that's the modern team. I'm talking about Mr. Burns' dead ball era team <laughs> oh, okay. that he wanted Smithers to go out. <laughs> Sir, your left fielder's been dead for 135 years. Don't cross him off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the team. That is the team, uh, in fact, I'm talking about. So do you remember... Any of the players off that team? No. Okay. So he names a few. Steve Sachs was a second baseman, by the way. Okay. Oh, okay. That's what you were looking Sorry. at. Um, I thought we were like five seconds in. I'm like, I've lost him already. <laughs> no. He's on his phone. <laughs> <laughs> no. I knew I made a mistake there. Okay. Anyway, so he, 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 he names a few. Mr. Burns does. He names Three Finger Brown, mm-hmm. Cap Anson, Honus Wagner, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 
But the rest of the roster is a pretty big all-star dead ball era team. Okay. Except for this catcher. So, Nap Lejoie, or Le Jolie, or whatever the hell they call him. Le Joie. Oh, I think we agreed on this already. Yeah. Chulis Joe, Pie Trainer, Harry Hooper, Jim Creighton. But the catcher on this dead ball super team is a name that not many would know, and in fact was a career backup for the most part, and was more known for attempting a catch off the field than his play on it. Okay. I was going to say, it's very interesting that this, you know, one particular player on the roster is not an all-star player like the rest of them. He must stand out for a certain reason. Yeah. And obviously you're about to tell us. But I also want to say, I love that about the Simpsons. It's like they put little tidbits in there where if you care enough to yeah. go and do the research, <laughs> you know, you're going to find something super interesting, I imagine. Yeah. Well, and funny enough, I actually thought this person was a woman when I first found this story. Okay. Uh, before doing more research. Uh, but his name is Charles Everett Street. Uh, Charles Everett Street. He is not known as Charles Everett Street. He's known as Gabby Street. Okay. Hence why I originally, when I read a, a tweet about him, I thought it was a, a, a woman. Uh-huh. So... Uh, We'll get why he's named Gabby. But uh, Charles Everett Street was born on September 30th, uh, 1882 in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, Street was one of seven children and grew up playing baseball, primary school, high school. And at 17 years old in 1900, he began to climb the ladder of minor league baseball, starting with the D-class Kit League. Kit was Kentucky, Illinois, and Tennessee. Okay. All right. So, class D? Class D. He okay. started at the lowest rung. Yeah. Or one of the lowest rungs. So Street made a name for himself as a solid backstop and made his way up to the Class B Central League by 1904. Uh, after that, he had his contract purchased by the Cincinnati Reds. Okay. So so he's in their system. He's, he's still a minor league guy. He's not on the Reds, right? No, he's going to the Reds. Okay, he's going right up to the Reds. Yeah, okay. see, forgive me. This is what had happened. The Reds needed a backstop. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they needed a backup backstop, and they had called up a young backstop by the name of Branch Ricky, but mm. Ricky was super evangelical and refused to play on Sundays. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Okay. So he returned to the Texas League, and Cincinnati was like, "Fuck, we need a catcher," and they were like, "Hey." So did they get him for just Sundays, or were they like, well, fuck Ricky, because he can't play Sundays, he's not playing at all? Yeah, yeah, they just, he went back to Texas, and they brought Street up to the big league club. Okay. So Street made his debut on September 13th. So this is the end of the season. So it's not like a big thing. It's not like he's going to be there all year at first, right? So uh, in 1904, he would play 11 games with them that September, uh, and the next season... Uh, the Boston Bean Eaters had a game in June where both their catchers got hurt, and since he was just a backup, they like lent him to the Bean Eaters for the rest of the year. Okay. But it really didn't work out, and he only played a few games with them. So he... How, What do you mean? So... The, the Bean Eaters must have got somebody else. Yeah, they figured they... They were like, this guy sucks, we're going to get someone well, else. Yeah, so he's loaned to the Bean Eaters, he makes his debut... He makes two throwing errors in that game that cost the Bean Eaters the game. Oh, so they're just like, oh. This... He gets hit on the finger. His finger's broken, but yeah. he's still playing. 
in total, you just place three games for them, and he commits four errors, and they're like, okay, go back to Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so he turn, returns to the Reds, and he, he plays 31 games with the Reds to finish the season. So once again, he's a backup catcher. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Josh Tolley. Yeah, and he can't hit. Like, my goodness, he's, a, he's like a 200 hitter, but he's solid behind the plate. Yeah. And as you're going to hear, his pitchers love him. Okay. His pitchers absolutely adore pitching to him. Sounds so. exactly like Josh Tolley. Exactly. There you go. Or a Josh or Maley. What's his name? Uh, Luke Maley. Luke Maley. There you Luke go. Luke Maley could hit for like streaks, though. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I mean, he's still a major league hitter. He just two hundred, yeah, two ten okay. kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so makes his... talking about old Blue Jays backup catchers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't really make a great impression. Uh, and in February 1906, his contract is purchased or sold to the San Francisco club of the Pacific League. Okay. So. He's moving on. Uh, Edzie, uh, are you familiar with what happens a couple months later in San Francisco in 1906? Is there a fire? There's a big fire. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a big fucking fire. Yeah. That. An earthquake and then a fire. Yes, thank you. Thank yes. you. There you go. Yeah. I'm actually, uh, kudos, good work. Yeah. Uh, so a history buff like I've yourself. I've seen documentary, documentaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a history buff like yourself would know that moving to San Francisco in 1906 was not a great idea, as the great earthquake and fire would strike a few months later on April 16th, 1906. So this is Gabby Street telling you what it was like just coming into martial law san francisco well he moves there yeah. in february right so he's there yeah, yeah so this is his experience with the earthquake okay um and i quote i was living in the golden gate hotel patronized largely by baseball players and members of the theatrical profession and during the wee hours of april 18th of that year i was thrown from my bed said street out in san francisco they still refer to it as to the act of God which tossed me from my bed as the fire. But the force that removed me from my mattress to the floor was an earthquake. Aroused, I rubbed my eyes, looked out the window, and saw buildings crumbling. And having heard whispers of quakes, I headed for the street. If I live to be a hundred, I, I shall always remember that scene. As we hit the street en masse, the rear of the hotel collapsed, and the water tank on the roof, halved by the second shock, washed everyone washed every one of us. I walked through the showers of bricks and mortar to the Golden Gate Park where I spent the night. Wow. <laughs> he got shook right out of his bed and then... And then runs the, down and the hotel he's in collapses. And the and water tower just soaks everybody. Oh, man. What, yeah. a, what a mess. It's absolutely... So he's he's homeless now in San Francisco. Hotelless. Well, yeah. He's... Uh, so yeah, he sleeps in a park. Like most, yeah. like so much of the city is destroyed. So many people are dead, and mm-hmm. it's everyone's just like, I guess we go to the park and wake that's where up. I'd go. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's you know the safest place probably, right? Yeah. Um. So after the sque- after the quake, uh, Street jumps ship and he plays in the Tri-State League, but returned to the Pacific Coast League in 1907. He had a great season by his standards, appearing in 159 games and batting a robust 231. Yeah. That's not bad. I mean, if you're a regular 200 guy, yeah. 231's a pretty fat season. There you go. Uh, so that was enough for the Washington Senators to purchase his contract that offseason. 
and thank goodness they did. For who? Well, the fact that we're talking about him okay. still. Okay. <laughs> so the senators. For him and for us. Yeah, the senators were hot garbage. As most. Notice how many teams we talk about that just sucked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they are like. Yeah, we what? talked about that in, in another episode. I think it was one of the oh the Bostock episode. We we're kind of talking about the history of the twins. Oh they God! Were, yeah. They were the senators and shitty for a long time. Yes. Anyway, not a on. lot of great years in senators' history. No. Anyway, um, carry on. So the senators were hot garbage in 1907, winning just 49 games and losing, I believe, 102. Um, they had used six catchers that season with Jack Warner in the last years of his career. They needed anyone to step up and own the position. Okay. So Street did that. For two years, he stepped up, he played solid defense, and he actually became the personal catcher of Walter Johnson. Wow. Yep. Okay. So Johnson praised his defense and abilities uh, and the ability to keep the pitcher loose. So mm-hmm. Johnson said, quote, He always kept the pitcher in good spirits with his continu- continual chatter and sense of, of sense and nonsense. He's up on the fellow, Walter. He's got a wife and two kids. <laughs> but his... <laughs> so as funny as that is, you know, it sounds like he just knew how to just keep yeah, everything loose. he just loose. knew how to have the good banter and keep everybody entertained. That's so, like a good card to have, though. You know, if you're... You know, he seems like he's not that great of a... He's, he's easily replaceable for the most part. But when, like... Literally the best pitcher in the game at the time is like, that's my guy. That's him. You know, not that's going to keep you there. And that's o- probably going to carry some weight for, you the, know, the, the rest future. of your career. Yeah. Well, well yeah. maybe not the rest, but you'll, like you'll, you say, for the future. You, you'll see. I mean, it's it's really, uh, we're, we're kind of doing a Gabby Street bio, but we're about to get into the nuts and bolts of why we're talking about this. <laughs> so he's Johnson's personal catcher. Uh, he's a defensive guy that hits 200. Um, so he'd probably be the perfect guy to attempt an impossible catch. Yeah, I guess so. He's pitching to the fastest throwing dude at the time. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so on August 21st, 1908, Charles Everard Street, now going by the moniker of Gabby Street because he was always gabbing to the pitcher during the game, Mm -hmm. took part in a bet between two Washington fans. Okay. (laughs) I didn't think you were going to say fans. Yeah, so one guy was a a newspaperman by the name of Preston Wilson, and the other guy was just some big Senators fan and probably social light. You'll see he has a lot of money, Mm -hmm. uh, by the name of John Biddle. Okay. So... The bet was very simple, Edzie. Gibson, the fan, yeah. bet the newspaper men Preston, or sorry, Biddle, the fan. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Sorry, I'm fucking it up already. I did a lot, a lot of editing to make sure I didn't fuck that up, and I just <laughs> and misspoke just, already. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So Biddle, the fan. Biddle, uh, yes. Uh, so Gibson bet Biddle that a Senators player could catch a ball thrown from the observation deck of the Washington Monument over 500 feet above the ground. What? Why? 
$500, Edzie. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but still. Like, Do you know how much $500 is? At that time? Yeah. No, I don't. $16,000. Okay, that's a big bet. (laughs) But like such a weird thing to bet on. Well, some people said it would be impossible. Okay. So this is before. I feel like it's not. I'd take the bet. You would take the bet? Yeah. That, so if I bet you, I know it's quite a big difference. If I bet you that, that. Jansen, Danny Jansen could catch a ball dropped off the CN Tower, and I was like, 15 grand. 15 grand, buddy. Oh, fuck, now that I think about that. 15 grand. Can Jansen catch? Now, how many attempts does he have? We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That seems pretty tough, actually. Yeah, so this is a large bet. Um, And and so Gibson, uh, the newspaper man, bets Biddle. That the guy can do it. And Biddle's like, no way. I'll put 15 grand down. Whatever. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so Gibson needed a ball player. And as sure-handed as anybody was Gabby Street. He was great. Caught Walter Johnson. You already pretty much talked about all the reasons why. The fastest pitcher at the time. You know this ball's going to be traveling at a huge distance straight down. Yeah. And he's a backstop. So who else other than the catcher deals with pop-ups coming straight down, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really, it's a great idea. This is your guy. In and, theory. Yes. And Gibson knows it. So Gibson is like, you got to do this for you me. You got to do this, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 15 grand, man. <laughs> well, and here's the fucked up part in all of my research. And I really, you know, I, I, I didn't phone it in on this one, but there wasn't a ton out there. And I never found out if what Street's cut was. Because he, he had to get a cut from this. Well, you would think so. You would think. It's like not going to go out and do this dangerous feat for nothing. Well, yeah, on either one's behalf, right? Yeah. I, if I'm him, I'm like, okay, I'm only doing this if both of you cut me in. True. Right? Cause right. True. He, he, you, you might miss it. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'd intentionally miss it for like out of that guy's. <laughs> Just be a fuck you, man. Yeah. You made me come out here. I... <laughs> Like I'll miss it. If, I'll, I'll I'll intentionally miss it if you give me fucking so thousand bucks. Street is like fuck off. No, and Gibson just keeps pestering him. Like no, you gotta do this. You gotta do this. And finally, he's like, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. So, <laughs> okay. Funny enough, though, this is not the first attempt at the stunt. So this particular stunt? Yes. <laughs> so what? this is okay, just Okay, so now it makes sense of why they bet on this. Yeah, well, this is just the first time it had been approved. As you see, they actually like go through the right channels to make this a publicity stunt. Okay. As opposed to in 1894 when the Chicago Colts pitcher Clark Griffin tossed two balls from the top of the monument to his catcher Bill Shriver. The first Shriver's missed completely. The second was reportedly caught Although Griffin, years later, would tell Washington Post sports writer Shirley Povich that the ball had hit Shriver's mitt, but then popped out. Okay. (laughs) So that makes it reasonably... That makes it sound possible. Well, and those two didn't go through the right channels, so here's the quote. So it doesn't count. Well, no, no, no. Here's the quote from Griffin. He'd have caught one, I'm sure, if the cops had just left us alone. <laughs> the cops immediately were like, you can't throw baseballs off the Washington Monument. I mean, they're right. <laughs> 
So they I mean, only if you're had gonna do two the proper attempts. channels. They should get everybody. Just <laughs> yeah, not like, just like you just stand down just there. Stand down there. I'm gonna go throw some yeah. baseball. Yeah. Just yell when you get near the statue down there, and then I'll throw. <laughs> yeah. So this has been attempted, and as I say, you know, it was at first reported that someone had made the catch, but the guy himself was like, "Nah, I like hit my glove and fell down." So that was two attempts. They only got two attempts. Okay. So, in that case, as I said, the police broke up the duo's game of catch after just two attempts. But 14 years later, the plan would be approved by the park superintendent in Washington, D.C. And press, fans, and even a couple Sounders teammates were on hand to watch the stunt. Okay. How high is the Washington Monument? I just told you. It's over 500 It's over feet. 500 feet? That's yeah. pretty close. I thought. I so the observation deck itself is like 504 feet, and I think the... Actual tires, towers, like, or monument, I should say, is, is 568 feet or something like that. Okay. So much higher than I thought. Yeah, it's it's pretty high. I've yeah. never been there myself. Uh, I've seen it from afar, but mm -hmm. it's it's pretty it's pretty tall. Okay. It's pretty tall. So um, the two men also had a problem. The base of the monument was wider than the top of the monument. So they concocted a chute for the ball to roll down in order for the ball not to hit the structure on the way down. So they tried to make some shoot that would precisely, you know, so you carry it over the... Yeah. Uh, okay. Many believed the catch to be impossible, and some, probably rightfully so, thought it to be dangerous. That being said, it is very impressive given what we know now. And I didn't expect to be looking up physics papers for this <laughs> shit, but... There I was last night, okay. reading some physics shit. Uh, honestly, it was a lot of fun, though, and I still don't understand most of it. So, uh, okay. the ball would be falling from 504 feet, as I say, where the observation deck is. Mm -hmm. And legend has it that Ted Williams hit a pop-up 565 feet in the air. But that's pretty much bullshit. 565 yeah, it, feet? No, it's absolutely bullshit. Are you fucked? Yeah, How? Exactly. Like, it would be impossible. It's uh, you'd, you'd have to be like lying down and swing straight. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> Suspended in reality and hitting yeah. the ball. Um, so that's basically impossible. So... Um, They'll just make up anything about fucking well, that's legendary where, dudes. Eh? That's where academics get involved here, right? Okay. So in 1998, Robert Israel of the University of British Columbia uh, calculated the maximum height of a pop-up that went straight up could reach uh, no more than 59.3 meters or 194 feet. Which is still very still pretty, fucking high. Pretty high, yeah. If you think about how high a baseline, or of a 90-foot baseline... That's basically times that, like, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, times that by two and a bit. <laughs> That's a yeah. very high pop-up. So, of course, that was in 1998, and, and you know, pitchers throw harder now with a pitcher hitter swing harder. There's a little bit of different dynamics. So what we've seen in the StatCast era, I believe the highest pop-up that I could find at least was measured at 207 feet. So about, okay. about... So it's fifteen a little higher, feet, but fifteen not, feet higher, yeah, yeah. not that much higher, right? Than the per, than the perspective back not in nineteen five hundred and sixty-five yeah. goddamn feet, like that's fucking <laughs> yeah, insane. That's fucking insane. <laughs> so obviously, 
this all the moon is actually a pop-up by ted williams (laughs) (laughs) well and here's the thing was ted williams a pop-up or was it a really high hit fly ball that like still no i know still it probably wasn't that high but if if you look at the trajectory on a pop-up like even joey gallo so i i believe what the the university professor calculated it was literally a pop up that went like straight up like it, it couldn't mm-hmm. go higher than that. so mm-hmm. obviously if you add a little bit of angle to it it can go a little bit higher than that so but if we're talking about infield pop ups you know we're talking 207 210 feet is probably the maximum that people are doing and Gabby Street's about to catch a ball two and a half times that height <laughs> yeah okay two and a half times a regular pop up yeah or actually no not a regular pop up the highest fucking pop up <laughs> yeah. possible yeah so one he's probably never seen yes exactly um yes yeah, so to put that in slightly more context for the modern baseball fan uh, the catwalk at Tropicana Field above home plate is 194 feet and basically has maybe got hit once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, once again, two and a half times the highest possible pop-up. As sure-handed as he was, it was a ridiculously hard thing to do. So, you still gonna bet your $500. <laughs> I don't or fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that now. Okay, so the morning walk this bet back by the end of this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On the morning of August twenty first, nineteen oh eight, Gabby Street put on his suit, whatever street clothes, however a guy dressed in nineteen oh eight. It's got a button-up shirt, probably, and suspenders. There's yep. pictures of it. Anyways, he's... woolen pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> so he walks to the Washington Monument uh, with a couple teammates as the crowd awaited. I have to also say that this is not an off day. <laughs> In fact, Walter Johnson's <laughs> pitching that, ne- that <laughs> later that day. He's got a game later on. Yeah, he's got, a de- he's got to go from this stunt to catch. It's a very poorly planned. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really dumb. <laughs> so uh street arrived especially since he's like they're already on their like third catcher of the season well at this point <laughs> it's his second year with the senators oh, okay, and, so. and he's he's a pretty uh he's he's established himself okay. and this is the most established he'll ever be in his career mm. these these couple <laughs> years the washington monument guy yeah yeah these couple years in 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 uh, 1908 1909 he actually is basically their first tier catcher okay but he's getting older you'll see like his, his career is this is this is the height these two years <laughs> three years whatever it is with the the senators are, are are a big deal um so street arrives to the monument he's with george mcbride and and bob ganley uh they're his uh, teammates that are coming to support him his posse yeah he uh, saw all the onlookers and looked up at the towering monument and immediately felt dizzy <laughs> it's not a good start. <laughs> yeah, so he takes. Feels sick. I think I need to go home. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! So he takes off his jacket and he uh, puts on his catcher's mitt, and he like goes to the place where they feel the ball's goes, gonna fall. Yeah, goes to X marks the spot. Uh, yeah, uh, it was nearly impossible for him to see the observation deck from there. So once again. Very high up. I've not been there. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but signals had been arranged to let him know when the ball was on its way. Once again, I couldn't find anything about these signals. And in fact, this was just kind of a passing, like, kind of like, oh, they had some signals to let him know. Um, but you'll see his, his teammates try to help. Um, but immediately it's a letdown. So basically, I, I should tell you, from some accounts, it's really hard to know how many balls they had up in that observation deck. Mm-hmm. Because... I'm not sure if this happened right as he got there or as they were testing it earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first 10 balls that they drop down the chute, like clank off the tower and like roll down, like it's didn't work. didn't work. It's okay. not. So they're trying to adjust the angle and it's not working. They're like, fuck, fuck. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> Um, you can't just throw it? Well, and then essentially they're just like, you know what? After ten times of trying to use the shoot, they're like, fuck it, let's just throw it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which now that I've said it out loud, I'm like, that is insanely sketchy. Well, because now you don't, yeah, you know. Well, it's much more controlled when you just roll it off a ramp and let it roll off the building. Yeah. And I mean, also looking at the physics of this, so the ball is like also like... The rolling would probably, you know, kind of keep the ball, but but as it falls, it like loses spin and becomes almost like a knuckleball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an immediate letdown, but then they're just like, "All right, we're gonna throw it." The first ball, <laughs> the first ball, is thrown, and Street did not catch the first ball. I wouldn't have expected him to, but he came close, Edzie. How it close? Literally hit his glove. Really? And fell to the ground. Hey, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. But he's having a hard time. He it's like I didn't fucking I can't see it. And the ball's being thrown. Uh it's landing like behind him and stuff like that. Uh it's fucked up. Uh but Gainley is just like, alright. Just pull your head down and I'll let you know when it's like visible. And then you can look up. And make the catch. <laughs> what? I know. It sounds absolutely nuts. Why? Because he's looking up. Remember, he's getting dizzy. Yeah, okay. And the yeah, ball, yeah, yeah. like, so he can't even see it. They're like, it's dropped. And he's like, I don't fucking see it. I don't see it. Ah! <laughs> so, Gamely's just like, I'll let you know when it's visible. Just keep your head down and then look up. Make the adjustment. Make the catch. Okay. Right? So... Once again, I very guess. dangerous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Street missed eleven more balls. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As expected. Now well, he's not even looking. Yeah. Well, he, he's trying. Well, I know, but. And up in the observation he's, deck, he's trying to catch it when he probably has like absolutely no time to catch, look, catch it, make the adjustment, and make the catch. Yeah. And Gibson's probably shitting his pants now because it's fucking a lot of money. And guess what? There's one ball left. Oh, man. (laughs) Pressure is on. So I I should say, in some articles it said there was 15 balls thrown, and and in other articles it said 13. Mm -hmm. I went with 13 because it was in more sources. Okay. Um, But let's say this is the unlucky number 13. It's the last ball. So, Gibson tosses it. As it fell, Street squinted into the sky, trying desperately to locate the ball. I didn't see the ball until it was halfway down, Street told reporters. 
It was slanting in the wind. I knew it would be a hard catch. According to onlookers, <laughs> when the ball made contact with Street's glove, it popped like a gunshot, and the force caused his arm to nearly drop all the way to the ground. But the catcher <laughs> held on tight. Oh, man. And secured himself a house. Yeah. <laughs> he raises his glove above his head. He fucking caught it. Everyone's like, That's amazing. Yeah. Damn it. I should have kept the bet. Yeah. So Gibson wins his 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's actually, yeah. He did it. He did I'm am- it. I'm amazed. Yeah. No. Um, it's absolutely... <laughs> it's pretty incredible, actually. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm just, like, making sure. Yeah, so... Fucking Biddle is pissed off. <laughs> but well, yeah. he lost fair and square. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and he's got the money yeah. to put it up, I assume. So Street continues to the reporters, uh, The ball I caught hit my mitt with terrific force, much greater than any pitch ball I've ever caught. I thought my mitt, er, though my mitt is three or four inches thick, the force of the ball numbed my hand. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking guess so. I mean, honestly, I mean, here's the thing. Two and a half times the maximum pop-up, according to physics. Yeah. Here's the, here's the estimation, according to physics, that... Uh, the ball was probably traveling over 95 miles an hour, uh, but the force was probably close to about 300 pounds of force. <laughs> Fuck. So it's like a pitcher throwing at you from above. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Shohei Otani throwing a fastball, and you're just looking up at him. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, after the media scrum, Street continued on his day. He caught Walter Johnson, and the Senators won against Detroit 3-1. to one. The exertion on that dude's arm that <laughs> happened that day was probably enough for a whole season. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Um, for most other, you know, other catchers of the day not having to catch Walter Johnson every time they go out there. Yeah, and Johnson definitely. If, he, if they won 3-1, he threw the whole game. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so Street would play uh, for the Senators until the end of the 1911 season. He was a solid catcher, but never could hit. Street's last season in the majors was in 1912, after he was traded to the New York Highlanders. He split the season between the Highlanders and the Providence Grays of the International League. He spent the, Then he spent the next five seasons in the Southern Association, playing backstop for both Chattanooga and Nashville. But his story doesn't really end there. He keeps going. He's got some pretty fucking big highlights here as we do a mini bio at the end. So in March of 1918... Oh, and I should add, there's a surprise at the end. Okay. <laughs> I love surprises. So, uh, yeah, just don't get too warm to this guy. So in March oh, of 1918... I don't love surprises of that nature. Yeah. So in March of 1918, Street signed up uh, for World War One. At 35 years old, mm-hmm. uh, he would earn the moniker Sarge, as he would use. Uh, and uh, Street would say that he was going off to fight in the real world series, okay. which is a very horrendous euphemism, <laughs> yeah. considering that a generation of Europe children were being slaughtered. Yeah. So, yeah. anyways, uh, he uh, soon uh, fucked around and found out in okay. uh, World War One, uh, so he convinces his lieutenant to send him in to fight in France right away 
because originally the army was like, oh, we got Gabby Street. You want to play for the army baseball team? And he's like, no, I want to. No, I want to fight people. Yeah. yeah. I want to kill people. Yeah. Okay. He's like, I would have just kept playing base. I'm 35. Like, I didn't need to do this. Like, yeah. <laughs> you would probably, probably would have avoided the draft or gotten some, like, home front position if I did get drafted. So, yeah. whatever. Um, so, he's like, fuck it. I want to kill some people. I'm going to the World Series. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, he uh, sees combat, uh, a lot of combat. Um, and uh, he's a member of the 1st Gas Regiment. So, he gasses people to death. Um, also provides smoke screens. So Street's part, uh, Street took part in three major engagements, Chateau Terry, uh, St. Mihail, and the Argonne, which was a very intense battle at the end of World War I. Uh, so him and his men joined the 138th in the Battle of the Argonne. Street's men held down a smoke screen for the 138th Infantry on September 26, 1918. A week later, he was shot in the leg by a machine gun bullet from a German airplane. That shit doesn't happen in the World Series. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we didn't catch that bullet. Yeah, exactly. So he, as I say, he uh, you know serves his country and does the shit in World War One and catches a bullet for it. Uh, but he goes home. He's awarded the Purple Heart. Uh, and his fighting okay. days in France are over, and obviously this kind of sucks, being shot in the leg and being a catcher. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he continues... Being the... shot in the leg would suck in general. Oh, yeah. Especially being a catcher. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it didn't sound like a grievous wound, though. So he does continue playing for a little while. In fact, he's getting more into, like, player management, or uh, player manager kind of roles. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he's... Yeah, he he goes in the 19... He's down in the minors again. Like, that's what I mean. His time in the big leagues are over. That was his big league. Like, a little stint with the Cincinnati Reds. Walter Johnson's personal catcher. catcher for three seasons, four seasons, and that was it. Yeah. So somehow he made Mr. Burns' team. Okay. <laughs> but, anyways. In 1930, though, uh, Street, now known as Sarge, a moniker he earned during his service, uh actually became manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. The cards would catch fire down the stretch, a la the 2015 Blue Jays, per se, uh, and would win the pennant with just two games to spare. So they go, like, 45 and 15 down the stretch and win the pennant. And everyone's like, oh, this guy's the best. Mm -hmm. uh, but okay. they lost in the World Series to Connie Mack's Athletics and would get revenge the next year, though. So in 31, the cards cruised to an NL pennant this time and got revenge by winning the World Series in seven games, making Street a World Series champion manager. He even appeared in one game for the Cardinals at the age of 48, starting the Jesus. game... <laughs> Holy shit. He started the game behind home plate uh, and got one at bat in the game before pulling himself, I guess. Mm. <laughs> he was like, that was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> My legs hurt. <laughs> <laughs> My bullet wounds hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to play catch from 500 feet? Yeah. Just for fun. But the glory days of 1930 and 1931 uh, would fade. The cards fell off and Street resigned from a middling Cardinals club midway through the 1933 season. But don't bother feeling bad. <laughs> Because the Alabama-born Charles Gabby Street was a seething racist and a member of the KKK. Oh, God. Yeah. Which makes the next part even weirder. And this is all shit I just found after the fact. Okay. 
So, you have to keep this in mind as I say this next sentence. Gabby Street helped Tony Stone get her start in baseball. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those things are, I guess, not mutually exclusive, but you'd think they would be. Well, we have a, somebody uh, kind of explained it much better than me, but here's the story there. Apparently, the field where Stone hung around uh, in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota, where she grew up, uh, there was a boys' high school or a boys' high school camp or baseball camp or something like that, and Street was manager of the St. Paul Giants. Mm-hmm. Also ran this baseball camp slash program, whatever the fuck it was. Okay. So um, Tony Stone would basically stand in the park and listen to his instructions to the players mm-hmm. and like mimic, you know, what they were doing. And apparently, you know, she kind of got closer and closer and eventually worked up the courage to be like, hey, coach, like, I'm going to play. And he was like, fuck, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So, like, indirectly he gave her her start by just her listening to him? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. She comes back. Oh, okay. She's tenacious and just keeps kind of showing up and listening to him, and now she's close enough that he can see what she's doing. Right. And he's like, all right, fuck it. Like, okay, she's good. She's fine, whatever. Uh, so this is what he said. I just couldn't get rid of her until I gave her a chance. Every time I chased her away, she would go around the corner and come back and plague me again. <laughs> Once again, it's not like, oh, she was just awesome. It was like, she was persistent. Yeah. She, she's been, she plagued me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Alabama-born street... Pestered by the quick little infielder, let Stone practice with the local boys at his baseball camp. Though reputedly or reportedly very racist, he was so impressed with Stone that he gave her her first pair of cleats. So, okay. Why is this member of the KKK allowing this young black girl in the 1930s to play with the boys? Well, he probably was doing it because he actually saw she was good and probably used it as like being like making his guys be better than her right like just Mm -hmm. being like look she's better than you like in like a backhanded way stuff but so martha ackman um would not let street off the hook though in tony stone's biography curveball saying he could make an exception for one black girl who seemed obsessed with baseball without reevaluating his own racist attitudes towards all black citizens. Mm, that's a good point. That's just the best way. Yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Martha put it best there. It's basically, he allowed this. Made the exception for this one person that was good instead of, yeah, reevaluating not, and being like, well, perhaps like my view is misguided here. And yeah. And she's know, everybody non, should be included. No. And she's non-threatening. She'll listen to anything he'll say to right. uh, his position of power is not, you know, upset by her. It's no. not like he let her, you know, play. He mm-hmm. let her practice and do the camp stuff. And, you know, like was like, Oh, good for you. I like that. You like baseball, but mm-hmm. like, would probably call her parents terrible things. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so as I say, don't let him off the hook, people. No. Uh, Street's legacy uh, would not be done yet, though, uh, in Missouri at least. Five years later, he'd return to Missouri. He also met his wife in Joplin, Missouri. They became 
a family. Five years later, he would return to St. Louis and manage the Browns, but they really sucked, and that didn't last long. Soon after, he became color commentator for the, for the Browns and then the Cardinals radio broadcast during World War II. He then teamed up uh, for broadcasts from 1945 to 1950 with a young broadcaster by the name of Harry Carey. Hmm. Yep. So okay. Street is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 1949 and dies in his hometown or adopted hometown of Joplin, Missouri on February 6th, 1951 at the age of 68. It is not often a backup defensive specialist catcher get recognized 100 years later, but thanks to the Simpsons and the infamous $500 bet, Gabby Street will live forever in baseball infamy. Hmm. That's a wild story. I'm like I said at the beginning of the episode. I like that about the Simpsons is that they'll throw little, you know, Easter eggs in there for you to find. I don't like that like this racist guy kind of got immortalized <laughs> in a Simpsons episode. But oh my God, Cap Hansen was on that team. True. Though. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. <laughs> he had a, lot... a much more uh, yeah, prevalent were... uh, role in that. Yeah. original roster yeah yeah no i mean there there's i mean if we're talking baseball history come on i mean everybody i'm not everybody's racist but well, a we, lot we, but well yeah <laughs> we've covered a lot of people that aren't exactly model citizens as well right? <laughs> oh, so, oh you, you, you don't <laughs> not say not even necessarily you racist just fucking well i think it's important though too i mean we can tell the story of gabby streets catching the ball from the monument and you know, I tell this life yeah. story. As long as it's important, you're like, hey, yeah, this guy was By the a way, big racist. Yeah. yeah, He was born in Alabama and really leaned into that shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, and, and as I say, it's, uh, it's, it's just a crazy story to think, like, just that catch. That catch is amazing. Like, yeah, that's, that's insanely impressive. I also want to note, if you did that from the CN Tower observation depth that's like a thousand feet that's so, so that's it's double insane. that's double that so again. it's double so all right so we got to find a building in toronto that's 500 that. feet yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> let's contact the proper avenues yeah exactly <laughs> where is a park with a structure <laughs> oh god all right well yeah i would say that it was the that was gabby's uh monumental catch um i like what you did there there we go there we go (laughs) um but yeah tune in in a couple of weeks uh we got some playoff stuff coming to you this october and uh yeah really looking forward to uh the playoffs and the stretch run here hopefully our teams do well and your teams do well too unless your teams are playing our teams which i hope you don't do well yeah that's right (laughs) i agree and i hope uh yeah i hope our the playoff story that you have coming up is a great one i'm planning to have a good one for you so yeah yeah i'm I'm excited for it i'm excited for it i think i I think i got something good uh but uh but we'll see i might change my mind okay well uh follow us on twitter at doing baseball and uh, instagram at doing dot baseball uh i'm at Ed's Do Baseball on Twitter. And I'm at Sean Do Baseball on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. I said that already. What? Yeah, you I were wasn't listening. listening. You're looking I at your computer again. I was but, uh, looking at my computer. Uh, of course, thanks for listening on Apple Podcasts and uh, Spotify. Give us a rating review if you can. We appreciate you listening. And uh, until next time. Uh, I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we were doing the baseball postscript. Two years later, Bill Sullivan of the White Sox the American League's premier catcher caught three baseballs thrown by Ed Walsh off the top of the monument.
Wow, what a record. Okay, bye. <laughs>